The second Bible reading is taken from the letter of James. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. May the Lord bless the reading, the teaching, and the understanding of his word. Thank you, Yuvi. Uh, well, good morning. My name's John, if we haven't met. Uh, hopefully I'll get to meet you over at Morning Tea if we haven't met yet. Uh, we are starting a new series on, on the book of James, and this series will take us almost up to Christmas. And it's a wonderful book because it's such a practical book. And I'm praying, and hopefully you're praying with me, that over the next few months we'll actually see real change as we... Allow the Word of God to be applied to our lives. Because it's such a practical book, hopefully we will see these real change amongst us as we relate to one another, as we seek to live a life of loving God. Uh, let me encourage you to keep uh, your Bibles open to James chapter 1. We'll actually work all the way through this passage. And we'll hear what God has to teach us. Let's, let's join in prayer again. Heavenly Father, as we sit on your, under your Word now, and reflect on the words you have to teach us. We pray, Lord, that you will change us from deep inside, that your spirit will apply your word to us, that our lives might be more honourable, more desiring to your eyes as we apply it and live it out. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like to ask you to help me finish off this sentence. What doesn't kill me makes me, what is it, weaker? No. Or eventually kill me anyway? What does not kill me makes me stronger. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard that quote before. But what do you think about it? Do you think it's true? Is it really just cliche and trite? No, do we really believe that? The school of heart knocks, what does that do? The school of heart knocks just knocks you around until it knocks you down and out. Now, of course, it wasn't a Christian who coined that phrase. It was a German philosopher, Nietzsche, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But this morning I want to ask you, you who are Christians and you who are listening on this, how are we meant to think about all the hard knocks of life, all that we experience in life, all the trials, all the ups and downs, the, the conflict, the illnesses, the stress, the anxiety, the depression, the despair, the sorrow, the tears, when we experience all of those experiences and these feelings, how are we meant to think about life? Now, just what I just described to you, all those feelings and experiences, they were all the things I heard and saw and witnessed only in this past week. And so this is real. It's a real issue for all of us in this church. And so it doesn't make us stronger if it doesn't kill us. Or is that just... Wishful thinking, self-deception, mistaken belief, false hope. So what do you think? Well, as we reflect on this passage and come to this text, we will be shown how Christians are meant to think. And what Nitschke once said, in fact, for those who are Christians, it does not go far enough. James, in fact, takes it even further. And as we reflect on these words, it's in fact quite shocking to hear, almost outrageous to hear, so hard to believe. Because not just make us stronger what doesn't kill us, the way, the things, the trials we experience in life is to mature us as Christians as we endure all the trials of life. And we are to see in this text, we are blessed by God himself when we face testings. And so I suspect what's necessary for us to really allow the Word of God to, to dwell deeply on our hearts and to make a real deep, genuine change. What is necessary for all of us this morning is to reflect on our station of life at this moment, on your station of life this moment, on all that God has given you in terms of your responsibilities, the relationships you have, to reflect on your experiences and your feelings, but then to see it all from God's perspective. And that's what this text gets us to do. So firstly, to mature is to endure. You want to mature, you want to grow, then you need to endure. Now James, the author of this letter, most likely the half-brother of Jesus, by this time a leader in the early church, the church in Jerusalem, and he wrote this letter knowing what the Christians around the Mediterranean were experiencing. Christianity at this stage was still illegal. 
And of course the Christians all around the place, they experience what people experience all the time. And they are trials, sorrow and tears and hardship and suffering and pain. Which means this letter, if you, if you just think about that, it is so live and relevant for us today. So let's have a look. To mature is to endure. And as we reflect on just the first verse, we have to feel the weight of what James is claiming here because it's such an extraordinary claim. It's almost unbelievable. It's outrageous. Look at verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Now, don't you find that extraordinary? How dare he say such a thing? I mean, he doesn't say he consider it something you'll just get over with time, something you just have to suck up because that is life and bad luck. He says, consider it pure joy in the face of trials of many kinds, multicolored trials, multifaceted trials. Now, reflect on that verse again. Isn't that outrageous? Like, really? Consider what I'm going through in life, pure joy? That's shocking. I mean, what are some of the things that you might be experiencing at the moment? Some of the things that are going in your life, can you look at that and think, pure joy? I mean, was James really serious with what he was saying here? That those who, of us who feel weak, and vulnerable. Those of us who at the moment feel maybe a bit rejected or even isolated, can you look at that and think pure joy? Or those of us who are sick, who've been experiencing chronic illness for years, and that's some of us, can you look at that and think pure joy? Or those of us who are bereaved, those of lost parents or even lost children, can you look at that experience and, and say, Pure joy? Those of us who've experienced injustice and feel vulnerable, made to feel vulnerable, can we look at that and say, pure joy? I mean, what's James? Did he make a typo here? Did he make a mistake? But you see, what James was saying here is that in the sovereignty of God, in the divine mind of God, in the good purposes of God for his own people, there are no accidents. Nothing happens meaninglessly. And that, you see, can only be true if there is a God. If there is no God, everything is just an accident. It's just good luck, bad luck, and too bad. And what James is also saying here, he's not saying we as Christians are meant to enjoy pain because it's simply painful. And so you give me a punch, it hurts, it's painful, and I say, pure joy, give me another punch. That would be ludicrous. That's depraved. But what he's saying here is, he's saying, he gives us a reason, in fact. He's saying it's not meaningless. You can consider it pure joy because God is using it to do something deep within us, transforming from within, strengthening, building, and maturing I mean, the suffering itself is not nice. Of course not. Who likes that? But God will accomplish something good through it. So to mature is to endure. And it's just like strength and endurance training. 
our kids. They've been taking uh, swimming lessons for quite a few years now, and, and they don't like it at all each week. We go and they're having lessons, they're doing laps, they're learning freestyle and breaststroke and backstroke and butterfly for our older kids. They don't like it, doing laps and laps and laps. But what's been happening over the years as I've been paying my fees as a parent, as they've been doing the laps? Well, they've been building up in stamina and endurance and perseverance and strength so that now they all swim better than I can. I just fake my swimming. They do it way better than I can. But you see, the trolls of life works a bit like that. It builds spiritual muscles in us and character. And so look at verses 3 to 4. James says, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may mature and be complete, not lacking anything. Now reflect on those verses again. What that verse is saying is that you are incomplete as a person if you're yet to endure trials and testings. You're incomplete. You're not yet mature. To mature is to endure the trials of life. And I wonder whether in our fellowship, as you get to know each other more and more, don't you see that those of us who have a vitality of life, those of us who have a robustness of faith, those of us who have a depth and strength of character, are those who suffered much. Those of us who suffered much, there's a depth of character. Those of us who have a character that it's grown by God are those who have been broken by God. There's this story of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that Welsh preacher. He was at a group with other clergy interviewing a candidate for a very important ministry position. And there was a very young, very impressive chap. Everyone thought he'll be the right person for it. Impressive, intelligent, articulate. Everyone thought, well, he's, he's the one. But it was Lord Jones or one of the other senior clergy who pointed out, not him, not this young man. Why? They said, because he has not yet been broken by God. You see, when we come to the end of ourselves, then we learn to lean and depend on God like nothing else. God breaks us down before he makes us whole. It was Tozer, the American preacher, who once said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's so ironic, isn't it? But yet it seems that's how God accomplishes the deeper work in our character. And so when you have that perspective from God on life, on your trials, even in the midst of tears and sorrow, which I know some of us are experiencing, you can still count it pure joy. But of course in the midst of trials and pain, it's often very hard to see beyond the fog. That our mind is all cloudy, the outlook is all dark, the heart is aching, the tears are flowing, the emotions are all over the place, the, the pit is pitch black, and there's no hope, it looks so bleak. 
And that's why in moments like that, it is especially in moments like that, we need a wisdom that comes not, not just from anyone, but from God himself. And that's why at moments like that, it's the time to turn to God and to beg, Oh Lord, in my experience, in what you're letting me see and feel at the moment, I just can't understand. But please grant me wisdom that I might count it pure joy. And that's what James goes on to say. Look at verse 5. You see, the wisdom is connected to the trials. He says, If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And isn't that so true? I mean, those of you who have already applied that to your own life, to your own trials, to turn to God, to bend the knee, and to plead, grant me wisdom, O Lord. And isn't it so true where God somehow, in his kindness, he clears up the fog. He grants a little bit more clarity. It might come from meditating on his word. It might come from how God uses fellow believers who use his word to bear, to be a bearing on our life. I remember in a, in a season that was really difficult for Yvonne and myself, a pretty dark season of hardship, it, it's hard to make sense of anything. The, the, the head's all foggy, the outlook's all bleak, and it's, it's just hopeless. But in moments like that, it's where leaning on God matters so much, meditating on the Psalms, but also listening to the wisdom of fellow brothers and sisters. I remember during this season there was a fellow older, wiser brother who was perceptive of what we were experiencing, which we try to keep to ourselves, but he was very perceptive. And he wrote, and he wrote and he said, if it feels like the crucifixion at the moment, the Christian story is that the resurrection will happen soon. And oh, how that gave me such encouragement, such clarity. God grants wisdom to see life and trials from his perspective, so that even when the tears are flowing, we can consider it pure joy. And of course, when we ask God, we, we read on, we don't doubt. You don't hedge your bets. You don't say, oh, I'm going to ask God, but I'm going to depend and rely on something else. Now, wouldn't that be so silly? I'll pray to God one moment, but then I'm opening up I don't know, Women's Weekly, looking at the horoscopes, turning to the wisdom of the world, listening to all sorts of business on the TV, and hedging my bets. Well, James says, don't doubt. Look at verses 6 to 8. When you ask, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. It's pretty clear and simple there, isn't it? We ask, we believe because God loves us so and will grant it so. So to mature is to endure. And if I can't see beyond the fog, I turn to God for wisdom. And now, James, he gives us an example of how that wisdom is applied. On reading this from verses 9 to 11, it might seem like James just gone off track, and now he's talking about the rich and the poor for some reason. It seems like, what are you doing, James? But what James was in fact doing was he was showing what wisdom looks like in the midst of trials. And so for the poor person, 
the one who lives life in humble circumstances. What are the particular trials of the poor person? Well, people might look down upon them. They might feel despised, neglected, oppressed, never get to enjoy the luxuries of life, tempted to feel bitter, resentment, envy. So what does wisdom from God, how does that help? What perspective does that give at that moment for the poor person in their trial? Well, they are to remember their high position in the gospel. You're poor in this life. It is okay because in the gospel, you are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. You have a high position because of the gospel. So we see verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. So in your trial, remember your gospel position. In the gospel for the poor, I am exalted, and so I can count it pure joy. But now for the rich person, the one who has much in life, what are their particular trials in life if you're rich? I mean, even the rich experience trials. Perhaps it might be seeking approval from the world. Perhaps it might be feeling tempted to find my worth and my identity in my wealth, in my riches, in what I have and own. It might be depending on my wealth for security and ultimate security. Now, how does God's wisdom help in that moment? What perspective does God's wisdom provide? Well, the rich, they are also to remember the gospel because in the gospel, the rich is brought low. They are humbled. They are shown you are spiritually bankrupt. All your wealth will not get you into heaven. But it is your humble dependence on God that saves you. And so we see verses 10 to 11 now. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises and, and with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. And so that's speaking to the rich person. In your trials, even if I lose my wealth and I face that type of trial, my confidence is in the gospel, which humbles me. And so I can still count it pure joy. And so to mature is to endure whatever the trials of life. But now we see to be blessed, to be blessed by God, is to be tested by God. Now this might sound strange. Martin Luther, the reformer, he was once asked, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And do you know how he answered? He said it was to bless them. You see, isn't that so strange, so ironic? The point of enduring all of life's trials is because there is a goal for all Christians. There is something at the end, if the faith is for real. There is blessing, ultimate blessing. We see in verse 12, look, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so you see there, trials only really meaningful if you are loved by God. If you love God, 
And what it's also saying is that trials are to be seen as testings from God. And so if I am suffering, if I am struggling, what do I do? Do I throw in the towel, give up on my faith, which is really so easy to do when it's tough, when life is tough? But here James is saying, I endure, I persevere, I cling more closely to Christ, I lean more heavily on God, and then I show myself to be loved by God and approved by him. I remember my saviour, Jesus, what did he do? He endured the cross. In Hebrews, we read, for the joy set before him, our saviour, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I remember my saviour who went through the same path. I remember the crown of life that awaits me. And so to be blessed, strangely, is to be tested by God. So that even now, I mean, in your experience, whatever you're feeling at, at home, whatever you're experiencing in life, whatever you're needing to bear and carry at the moment, it's what God has laid upon you as a test for the refining and the purifying of your faith to show to you it is for real and you can count it a joy. But of course we read on, James is not naive. Not everyone thinks that way. In the midst of trials and hardship, it's, it's very easy to just blame God. It is God's fault that I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing now. He's just trying to catch me out, tempt me so that I fail and fall. And I wonder whether there are some of us who think that way at this current moment. It is God's fault that I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. Well, James here speaks directly against that. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He is making a clear point. God does not tempt anyone. He doesn't get tempted himself. He is all on about our good. He is not in the business of tempting. He's seeking our good. And it's worth noting here that in the Greek, the word for tempting and the word for testing is in fact the very same word in the Greek. It's the context that determines the meaning. And so if it's testing, it is for our good. If it's tempting, it is for our evil, for our bad. God's only on about what is for our good. It's just like in an exam. You get an exam, you can pass that exam, or you might fail in that exam. And if you fail, you can't really blame the exam, can you? Nor can you blame the lecturer, the examiner. It's your fault that I failed. It's the exam's fault that I failed. No, the fault comes from me. And that's what James is trying to make clear. When tempted, where does it come from? And James goes on to say that we are, in fact, our own worst enemies. It's our own heart that gets baited. It's our own heart that desires it, and once it's trapped, it is a dead end. And so look at verses 14 to 15. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. 
which already says, you know, following your heart is probably not, a, not the best idea. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so acting on sin does not make it go away. When we give in to greed and selfishness, it doesn't make it go away. In fact, it takes a life of its own. And it's never God's fault, but our own. It was Billy Graham who, who once said, he said this when he was alive. Someone asked me recently, if I didn't think God was unfair, allowing me to have Parkinson's and other medical problems when I have tried to serve him faithfully. I replied that I did not see it that way at all. Suffering is part of the human condition and it comes to us all. The key is how we react to it, either turning away from God in anger and bitterness or growing closer to him in trust and confidence. The experience is the same. Do I see it as a test so that I might grow closer to God? Or a temptation where it pulls me away from God? But God does not tempt. And that's because finally we see here, God is always good. Nothing but good. Always good. His intentions are good. His gifts are good. Yeah, it's very easy for even Christians to be deceived and to be fooled to think that God means me harm. And so look at verses 16 to 17. James making clear here, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's making a point about the goodness of God. God does not change. Everything else in the universe changes. Shadow, they'll move. Our planets rotate. Everything will move. The universe itself it expands. But God does not change. And he remains perfectly good always. In illness, God remains good. In sorrow, God remains good. In despair, God remains good. In even depression, God remains good. In tears, God remains good. So good that he wants us to be a kind of first fruits, those who would enjoy salvation. And so our final verse, have a look. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that is the gospel, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And so what does that tell us? To be blessed is to be tested by God. And so what do you think? What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. What we see in this passage is it's far more than that, isn't it? Because to mature is to endure. To be blessed is to be tested. There's no other way. It is God's way through all our experiences of life, the good and bad times. Like a master artisan, he's chiseling away, remoulding, reshaping. And when that happens, it's never easy nor comfortable. Imagine someone just chiseling away at you. It hurts. But God is reshaping our life into a masterpiece prepared for heaven. And so with that perspective from this passage, how do you feel about your current experiences in life? How do you feel about what you're feeling at the moment? You see, the temptation is always there to 
to see suffering that we experience as such a big thing that we become so self-absorbed. It's like the biggest problem in the world. Allow whatever we experience to dominate our life, suffocate our outlook. And I've seen this over and over again, even Christians, isolating ourselves, distancing ourselves from other Christians, closing ourselves off. I see this so commonly enough, people stuck in a rut because you don't see life from God's perspective. It is still somehow to build character in you. I mean, just consider the stories in the Bible and the biblical characters, those who have met God and were touched by God. What happened to all of them if they were touched by God? They all suffered. Consider Joseph as a young man, a spoiled brat, really, like a stuck-up kid. If he was not sold by his brothers, if he was not slandered by Potiphar's wife, if he did not spend years in prison being humbled, feeling weak and powerless, do you think he would have ever learnt the lesson that he should have? Do you think he would have ever became the man he did? You see, without the years of being humbled and humiliated, in trouble, suffering, wrestling with God, experiencing weakness and despair, his character would not have matured the way he did. If God simply rocked up to him when he was a young man, you cannot be like that, a spoiled brat, and told him, would that have worked? Well, it wouldn't have. But God taught him through his life experience. Or take Jacob, for example, our first reading. What did he want from God? He was feeling insecure. He wanted to be blessed by God. So he was wrestling with God. And what did God do when he confronted God, when he met with God? Well, God touched his hip socket and he limped for the rest of his life. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones again, reflecting on that story, reflecting on what Jacob asked. And Martin Lloyd-Jones asked, how do you know if you, as an individual, met with God? Well, the way you know is that you limp, which means you've been humbled by God. You've been broken by God. You've come to the end of yourself. You see the frailty of life. You see the hopelessness and the seriousness of your own sins, which means for the rest of your life, you lean on God because you limp. You limp for the rest of your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, those who have truly met God in Christ, they come away with a limp. And that's why even if you've noticed amongst us, those of us who have a vitality of life, a robustness of faith that will just endure and endure and endure and persevere and persevere and persevere. Those of us who have a deep-seated joy in life, they are the people who also limp in life. They lean on God. Or another example, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's the chief of the apostles. He did so much for the gospel, lived so faithfully, but he pleaded to God, please take away from my sight this 
thorn in the flesh. Please take it away. And what did God do? Well, God would not take it away. It was left there to keep him humble, to teach him that God's grace is sufficient in weakness, that he lives his life limping too. And so what about you? You might be feeling stretched beyond what you can bear in life at the moment. You might feel burdened beyond what you can carry at the moment. You might feel troubled beyond what you can cope. Whatever that might be, illness and anxiety and depression, a thorn in the flesh, whatever that trial might be, it is no accident in the economy of God. One wise theologian, he said, the truth of the matter is that God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. God's more interested in your faithfulness than your financial success. God's more interested in your purity than your power, your endurance than your reputation, your self-control than your sexual prowess, your eternal life rather than your external wealth, your long-term joy rather than your short-term fun, your good rather than your desire. And that's why you suffer. That's why you limp. But you can count it all pure joy nonetheless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word, which helps us to see this world and our own trials and sadness and sorrow from your perspective. We pray, Lord, that you might give us strength to indeed count it all pure joy, for by it you are making us mature and complete, lacking nothing. We pray, Lord, that you'll protect us from bitterness, from resentment, from falling into temptation, but that we would, by your strength and by the work of your Spirit in us, stand a test and know the crown of life that awaits us who believe in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.